who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, <clears throat> in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. <clears throat> now in the portion of these verses that we considered last week, which was uh, Colossians 1.14, the apostle was concerned with establishing the preeminence of Christ, with regard to the salvation or redemption of sinners. And in doing so, he also set forth the true and only way of salvation, which was that Christ, by his bloody death, undergoing the wrath of God, paid the ransom which was demanded by God's offended justice in order to liberate sinners from the captivity and misery of the guilt of their sins. Or looking at it another way, that Christ, by his bloody death, erased the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That is, he canceled that legal document expressed in the law of God and in the sacrificial system that declared the guilt of the sinner and demanded his punishment, so that in the eyes of the law, the sinner could now stand innocent, justified, and perfect. And this cancellation of this legal guilt was not something he did arbitrarily, but rather by assuming that guilt himself, by undergoing the punishment demanded for all of those sins. And so hence we have in him, that is, in the Lord Jesus Christ, redemption through his blood, remission of the sins. Now this was all set forth to be a direct rebuttal to the Colossian errorists, one of whose chief errors seems to have been the denial of salvation, the denial of full salvation, by relying on an objective atonement made by the actual bloody death of the incarnate God. Over and over, Paul will return to this in these first two chapters. In, verse, in, in Colossians 1, we have verse 14, which we have considered. Again, in verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. In 21 and 22, uh, that he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Then again in verse 24, speaking of the afflictions of Christ in his flesh. Uh, chapter 2, a long section, verses 11 through 15. 
uh, which I will not read, but which contains the passage blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which we talked about before. So repeatedly, he comes back to this and spells it out <clears throat> in no uncertain language that it was by a bloody death, by an actual man suffering for sin. It was not a charade. It was not a, a, a some, uh, as certain heretics have believed through the course of the history of the church, that Christ was not a real man and so he did not actually die, but it was just a, uh, a charade. Not like that, but it was a bloody death of a man. Now, we must suppose that this error did not, this error in substituting or altering the doctrine of full salvation by the reliance on an objective atonement uh, was not uh, an absolute or direct denial of the gospel, or else I think that we can be certain that Paul would have addressed it directly as he did in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, rather, it seems to have been some sort of supplementation. Uh, furthermore, unlike the Galatians, I think this church of the Colossians had not in mass gone over to this heresy, but rather it was something that was troubling them. Uh, they were at the stage of being troubled by them. These teachings were arising. They were being hassled by them. Teachers were coming in and teaching these things, but they weren't necessarily embracing them. And so it's a different kind of letter from Galatians in that respect as well. But this error about the person of Christ was not merely um, related to altering the gospel with regard to Christ's role in the redemption of sinners. It seems also greatly to have challenged the truth about Christ's divinity and his preeminence as the true and living God, among other things. And so, the next topic to which the Apostle turns here in verse 15 regards the preeminence of Christ as God. Jesus, it would appear, was held to be some sort of celestial being, like a, a great angel, perhaps one who bore a special relationship with God, or even a unique relationship with God, marked perhaps by some special attributes, but that he was very God seems to have been denied. Instead, he was given a place, maybe an exalted place, but he was given a place uh, amongst a whole host of intermediaries between the sinner and God. And it would seem that, in fact, angels were preferred to Christ in this heretical scheme as being valid mediators between God and man in their quest for the fullness of salvation by some sort of mystical enlightenment, perhaps through asceticism, Jewish ordinances, philosophical speculations, ecstatic experiences, all of these things by which they would achieve this full salvation as opposed to just this entry-level salvation which you got through Jesus. And these things were achieved by these other intermediaries of whom Jesus was just one. <clears throat> now, having shown the uniqueness of Christ once already as being the intermediary between God and man, the one who provides for and obtains the salvation 
of men. He turns now to addressing this problem of lowering the person of Jesus as regards his divinity. And he asserts the preeminence of Christ as regards his nature and his being. And this is a vital truth for us to grasp today as well, though it is a very difficult one to expound. In one sense, it's easy if we just say it, but to understand it is very difficult. Many similar errors are being set forth about Jesus today, aren't they? Uh, the the uh, popular culture in which we live considers it to be sophisticated to believe that Jesus was merely a man. A great teacher, indeed, but after all, flesh and blood, just a man like you and I. And in fact, we've had a spate of books over the last three or four years purporting to prove that the Gospels, which recount the resurrection and ascension of Christ, are fictional works. That in reality, Jesus was simply a great man who was a teacher, who was taken and put to death by the Roman authorities uh, for sedition. There are those religions of the world which recognize Christ, but do not assign him the role which the Word of God assigns him. For example, in Islam, he is one of the great prophets, second only to Muhammad. Or perhaps in Buddhism, he is recognized in liberal Buddhism as one of the teachers, as like unto Buddha, one who, uh, an enlightened one who spoke words of wisdom. Or perhaps, this is becoming very popular, and it is so like the error of the Colossian uh, troublers, perhaps Jesus was a superhuman being, uh, uh, perhaps a man who had achieved a kind of partial divinity, or an angel of some sort. This is becoming very popular in what is called New Age teaching. Jesus as the superhuman being, the example of how man can become divine through enlightenment, through embracing all manner of uh, religions, and you can become like Jesus and be uh, in union with the divinity of creation. So these things are all around us, and they're all wrong, every last one of them. And there's hardly a bit of truth in any of them, put the way they're put. <coughs> <clears throat> the scriptures have a very simple doctrine, in essence, of answering this question of who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what relationship does he bear to the true and living God. And in this text it's put this way, speaking of the Son of his love, who is the image of the invisible God? Who is the image of the invisible God? Now, from here on, it gets very complicated, expositionally. So, uh, I tried to make it as simple as I could, but some of these things are just difficult to understand, so you'll just have to kind of hang on. Because this is perhaps one of the most profound uh, uh, high levels of doctrine that we can talk about trying to understand the divinity of Christ and what is it? What is the image of God? Now, this text holds forth two basic things that we have to be concerned with 
And we're going to do them in the reverse of the order that they come. The first thing that it holds forth that we need to be concerned with is this. Simple fact, we can put it this way. God is invisible. God is invisible. Invisibility is in fact an attribute of God. As Paul clearly states in his benediction, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. You see, the invisibility of God is here ranked along with the eternity of God, that He has always existed, and the immortality of God, that He always will exist. It's to describe God, the only wise God, just to say that he's, just as it is to say that he's the eternal God, so we can say that he's the invisible God. It's a basic fact about God. Now this um, perhaps does not principally refer to the fact that God uh, has not been seen, that he does not have a body, but rather in the places where it is referred to, it perhaps refers more to the fact that he cannot be seen, that he will not be seen, that he cannot be known directly uh, as regards his essence. Because we can substitute this words, the concept of seeing God and the concept of knowing God are very much the same in the scriptures. So we could almost substitute this word know for see and get more of the idea. God essentially, that is, in his essence, the, 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 very, uh, the very essence of God is unrevealed, and neither will he reveal himself directly or essentially, and neither could we stand, neither could we stand to have him reveal himself to us, essentially, because the doctrine of Scripture seems to be that if he did that, it would destroy us. <clears throat> uh, several verses... Buttressing this uh, idea, First Timothy, First Timothy uh, six sixteen. Who oh, this is speaking of, of 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 God, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. He's dwelling, his, his essence, the very being of God is dwelling in a light which no man can approach to, which cannot be seen, and has not been seen. First uh, John 1.18 No man has seen God at any time. Also, uh, a couple of other verses. John chapter 5, verse 37 and the Father himself, which has sent me, has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And also John 6.46, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father, referring to Christ himself. So that's the doctrine of Scripture. No man has ever seen God at any time. No man has ever seen God directly, essentially, as God, as, 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 the, as the eternal, immortal, invisible being dwelling in light which no man can approach to. No man has ever seen that. Destroy him. To be consumed by the glory of God. No man has even heard the direct voice of God. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about prophetic 
utterance. I'm not talking about that, but that's very clearly what Christ says. No man has heard his voice at any time. Not the the voice of God's essence. <clears throat> In fact, I think probably the truth of the matter is that all revelation is the revelation of Christ. And that whenever men have heard God speak, it has been Christ speaking. In creation, I'm sorry, uh, God's essence is invisible, it is unknowable. And if God essentially is invisible and unknowable, if, if no man can approach him, if no man can see him, if no man can, 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 can get close to him, how can anyone know him? You see, God in his essence is unknowable unless he is revealed through some medium. So he, can't, he doesn't reveal himself directly. It has to be revealed through some medium. Now, the scriptures hold forth various ways that this has been done. As you sure you can think of the passages which talk about God revealing himself in creation. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But this revelation is very limited, isn't it? His eternal power and Godhead. Does that reveal all that God requires of man and all that would have man, uh, he would have man believe? Certainly not. It reveals his eternal power and his Godhead. And their conscience, indeed, having the work of the law upon it, reveals something of the law of God, so that they're also without excuse. So in creation and in man's conscience, certainly there is some revelation of God enough to have men be inexcusable when they abandon themselves to idolatry and worship the creation itself instead of the creator. <clears throat> See, that's what he's saying in Romans 1, 19 through 20. That, that God in the creation, you can, you can see his eternal power in Godhead so that men are without excuse because what did they do? They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man. They worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. They changed the truth of God into a lie. Now sometimes that's a very primitive thing like uh, nature religions, totem poles and things like that. Sometimes it's very sophisticated, like uh, naturalistic philosophy, Darwinian evolution, which certainly changes, worships, and serves the creature more than the creator and changes the truth of God into a lie. But you see, there's very little, really, basic fundamental revelation in creation. Well, certainly also, someone might say, well, well uh, uh, isn't the, uh, the image of God visible in man? It's, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, uh, Man is the image and glory of God. Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our own image, our own likeness. Certainly that's true. Uh, but again, this is a very limited revelation. For example, it's the headship of man over the earth. Specifically in mind in one of those passages, showing certain aspects of God's dominion over creation in man's limited dominion. He is like God. And so there is something to be seen of God in him. It doesn't show everything, but it shows something. But it's limited, and we'll see it's imperfect as well. What about the redemption of man? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that, that, uh, that, that man, sanctified man, is, is the image of God? Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are, uh, we are 
as in a glass with open face beholding the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Certainly certain moral attributes of God are visible in the sanctified man as he's transformed from glory to glory. But by definition, it must be an imperfect picture if we're having to be going from glory to glory, from lesser glory to greater glory, from a less perfect picture to a more perfect picture, it's, then it's only a little bit of God that's revealed a little bit of the image of God that's in sanctified man. So we're left with this conclusion that if we look at creation or if we look at, at man or, or as man or if we look at man as redeemed man, <coughs> that we can't see God hardly at all. We cannot see God essentially. We can't see him as the being that he is. We can't directly view him and his attributes which is a spiritual being, our spiritual attributes. God is, in his essence, unknowable to us. No man has seen God at any time. And while we may see certain features of God in man, or in the creation, or in the redeemed man, or in our conscience, it is a limited picture and a fractured picture. He remains dark. He remains shrouded in an impenetrable mist. He's enveloped by a thick darkness or a bright light. He's a mystery. So the question then becomes, how can we know God? How can man know God? Where can we look to see God? Where can we view Him in order to gain a knowledge of Him, of who He is, of His nature, of His character, of His relation to us? Are we shut off from Him? Where can a man find God? Where can a man find the knowledge of God to know God? Where can we find a complete revelation of God, or as complete as a, as a human can receive? Where can we find a perfect picture so that we know that what we're seeing is God? Where can we find an unmarred revelation, an exhaustive view? There's only one place. The Son of His love, who is the image of the invisible God. And this brings us to our second fact. If God is invisible, He has revealed Himself in the Son. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does this mean? How is it true that Christ is the image of the invisible God? What does it even mean to be the image of something? And in what respect is Christ the image of God? And how does the image of God in Christ differ from the image of God in man or in creation? These are all vital questions. But first of all, let's reinforce this basic statement by some other biblical references so you can see that it's not isolated. Christ is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Christ, who is the image of God. Also, uh, John... 14, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. We'll be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And so on. 
Also, John 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Who being, this is speaking, he's speaking of the Son. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person or of His substance. Christ is the image of God. Now, if Christ is the image of God, we must ask, first of all, what does this mean? What does it mean that Christ is God's image? What is an image? Interestingly, uh, the Greek word here is icon, as in icon, that we get from it, in a direct transliteration. An image is the visible representation of something. For example, this word is used, Matthew 22.20, if we turn there. And read about a certain coin with which people were attempting to trick Jesus. They brought to Jesus a penny, the tribute money. And he saith unto him, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. You see what was on the coin. What was on the, the coin was stamped and formed with the picture of Caesar. So that if you looked at the coin, you could see Caesar's face, or, or Caesar in some pose, depending on uh, which period it was from, and which Caesar it was. Now, Christ is the visible representation of the invisible God. Remember that God is unknowable as to his essence. Only if he reveals himself can he be known or seen, and he can't reveal himself essentially. And so the obvious implication is that God has revealed himself in Christ. Christ, if you will, is the coin struck with the image and superscription of the invisible God. He is God revealed, God manifested, God to be seen and known when before he was invisible and hidden. And of course this immediately gives rise to the next question. In what respect is Christ the image of God? In what does the image of God in him consist? Well, let me, first of all, make it absolutely clear that it is not merely that if men see the, saw the incarnate Jesus in a body, therefore they saw God physically. Uh, and that is why it is vain to paint pictures of him, uh, pictures, excuse me, of a man, and call them Jesus, and imagine that we are somehow seeing God. Christ is the image of God to us as well, to those who haven't seen him with their eyes and who cannot see him in the flesh. In fact, no one will ever see him again the way that he was when he was on the earth because he is now glorified. His body is glorified, it's changed. The image of God consists in Christ's possession and display of all of the elements and attributes of God's nature. The image of God in Christ consists in Christ's possession and display of all of the elements and attributes of God's nature. And since God does not have a body, then Christ's body... Uh, which was his, his, his human body, real life human body that he took to himself so that he could die as a sacrifice for sin, <clears throat> is not 
seeing God. To see Christ spiritually is to see God. In Him, we see God's glory. The brightness of His glory, in fact. In Him, we see God's mercy. In Him, we see God's wrath against sin. In other words, we see the revelation of who God is. Of His nature, of His qualities, of His person. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He embodies God's attributes in a visible result, as one commentator puts it. By his own power he raises the dead, showing forth the God who kills and makes alive. The creator God. By his own power he heals the sick, showing forth the God who upholds all things. By his own power he multiplies the bread and the fish as the God who is the Lord of the seasons. In his perfect obedience to the law he shows the spotless holiness of God. In his tenderness to sinners we see God's mercy. In his revelation of the heart of man, we see God's omniscience. You get the idea. The point is that the scriptures are saying that if we want to know who God is, we must look fixedly and only upon the Son of his love, for it is he alone that beams forth and bears the perfect impression of the invisible God. Now, of course, suppose someone might come along and say, why... Scriptures say that man is the image and glory of God. Why, this just means that Christ was a good man, an exalted man, a perfect man, that did God's will and thus revealed God in his life and wisdom. And that brings us to our next question, which is, how is it that the image and glory of God in Christ differs from the image and glory of God in man or in creation? And the answer to this question is twofold. First of all, the image of God in Christ is perfect, Secondly, the image of God in Christ is complete. The image of God in Christ is perfect. It's not marred. It's not defective the way it is in sinful man or even in renewed man. Renewed man is said to be changed into that image from glory to glory. He has to get there. He's not perfectly there. The image of God in Christ does not have to be improved or perfected. It's perfect. And secondly, it's complete. Creation and man are only reveal a little bit of God. In fact, they can only bear to reveal a little bit of God. They're partial images. Even redeemed man at his most perfect state can only reveal a little bit of God's image. Because he's a man. But Christ is the complete image of God. That's the significance of Hebrews 1, which uses a different word where it says express image. It's used only there in all the scriptures. It's the word from which we get the word character. Karaktar in the Greek. He is the express image. And he's not just the glory of God, he's the brightness of God's glory. And so the natural implication, actually, is a third observation. If Christ is the complete image of God, if he bears the entire impress of the divine God, then the image of God in Christ is unique. It's not, boy, it's not anywhere else. Only he, in all of history past or to come, has this kind of image of God. Only he is said to be the express image and the brightness of the glory. And the, and the natural implication is vital. What does it take to bear the full stamp of divinity? We've said man can't bear it, creation can't bear it, because it's creation, it's created. How can Jesus be the express image? To 
because he himself is God. It takes divinity to represent divinity. It takes a visible God to reveal an invisible God. As the invisible God is inexhaustible in his being and depth of attribute, so must also the visible God be. And this is why this image of God in Christ, this is why Christ, as the image of God, receives worship. Why prayer is made in his name and to him. You see, if, 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 if we did that to a man or to the creation, that's called idolatrous and worshiping the creature instead of the creator. We're of men of like passions with yourself. Stop, says Paul, when they try to worship him. But Jesus embraced worship. Jesus demanded worship. Jesus called for worship. We worship Jesus each week, when we each day. All the time we ought to. Because he is the perfect, unique, visible representation of God because he is God. <clears throat> God is no longer shrouded in the invisibility of his essence. His essence is still shrouded in invisibility, but he is revealed to us, he's manifested to us, he's shown forth, he's represented perfectly in Christ. Now this capacity is assigned to him a number of ways. It is certainly true that as the second person of the Trinity, eternally the Son has borne the full stamp of the Father. Uh, Philippians 2.6, being found in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or he counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped at, to be held on to. He had it. It was equal with God. That means he is God. Jesus was the creator. We'll hear more about this in weeks to come. By whom also he made the worlds. So that whatever revelation of God there is in creation, that's the work of Jesus. Jesus revealing God in creation. So that the image of God and creation in man is his work, the fruit of his labor. But here in this passage we're talking about the Son incarnate. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing in Hebrews. In these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. That's talking about the Christ who, who has come. The Lord Jesus Christ. It is said of him that he is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. It is said of him that he was God manifested in the flesh. Of him it is said that the eternal divine word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 <clears throat> This is, we, we, we could go on here forever. We can never get to the bottom of this one. I can never explain it. I can only sort of touch at it. It's, 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 it's too big for us to comprehend completely. But there are a couple of basic lessons. Where can I find God? See, we live in an age when men, having lost God, are searching for Him. Searching everywhere that their sinful hearts take them. Where can we find Him, they say. And so they take themselves to every variety of religion imaginable. 
They take up spiritualism, meditation, witchcraft, consulting with the dead, Ouija boards, communing with nature, fasting, mind-altering drugs, guruism, following uh, 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 heretics and deceivers. They look for him everywhere. Some look for him in the Buddha, some in Muhammad, some in the trees and in the flowers. Some look for him in themselves. Some look for them in their past lives that they imagine themselves to have had. Well, God's not in any of those places. The only person in there is the devil. And that's what they're finding. Are you looking for God? He's not hidden anymore. He's not unknowable because He has manifested Himself in the Son. If you would see God, you must look upon Him upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would know God, you must know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. He's not merely a man. He's not a great teacher. Not a superman. Not a super exalted created being. Not an angel. He is the visible God. The manifested God. The God to be seen and known and revealed. <coughs> Now then we must ask, well, where can we find this Jesus? How can we see this Jesus? How can we know this Jesus? Is it by visions? By revelations? By prophecies? It's by the Word. Because Jesus is the Word. He's the Word in flesh. And so it stands to reason that the, the Word which reveals Him is where we ought to look. Christ is the Word of God incarnate, and to us He is set forth for us in the Word of God inscripturated. The Word of God written. If you're looking for Christ, if you want to know Christ, you can find Him in this book sitting right here. That's the revelation of Him. There we find who Jesus is, and there we may know Him. Now these truths are both something a mercy to be praised, and a duty to be considered. It is a mercy for which we ought to praise Him. God is unknowable, invisible. He could leave us completely without the least testimony of Him. And it would be our, our, our absolute desert that we would perish and fall into hell never knowing or seeing God except in the great day of judgment when we will be consumed by His wrath, except we be reconciled to Him. And that is a great mercy, that God has revealed Himself, that He's revealed Himself in His Son. But secondly, it is also brings an obligation. The fact that He has revealed Himself, that we might be saved, adopted, redeemed, enter into fellowship, that we might know His Word and believe it, brings a duty. Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation?